0: Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. Today, we're looking at first home buyers as well as what is happening in the prestige property market. There are lots of steps leading up to that first big property investment working at how much you can afford, getting loan pre-approval and of course, researching and finding a home that you love within your budget. But before all of that is a huge task of saving up that chunky deposit.
1: It's hard to save for a deposit. We want to help make the dreams of first home buyers a reality.
0: Later on in the show, we'll be talking prestige property with Domain's own Lucy Macken. But first, I'm speaking to Kate Bacos, buyer's advocate from Kate Bacos Property, to talk about how first home buyers are faring in the current market. Kate, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, Alice. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, what does the market look like for first home buyers at this current
2: point in time? Well, we have had the strangest market conditions for the last six months, and it's just been really difficult for everyone that's out in the market. But- obviously particularly difficult for first-time buyers because it's new to them. So navigating open for inspections and auctions with changed conditions because of COVID, um, it's been nothing short of a a really strange year for everyone.
0: Mm. So if we just try to sort of drill down information, what are the biggest hurdles for the first-time buyer group at the moment? I'd probably
2: say lending is really difficult. That's a very hard one to navigate right now because our lenders have really long assessment cues. Lots of lenders aren't necessarily offering a fully credit assessed uh, pre-approval. So it means mm-hmm. that pre-approvals are often being issued with a, a directive to make an offer subject to finance. And we all know what that means. If you're going to auction, you cannot be subject to finance. So first home buyers are feeling, you know, there's a lot of fear and trepidation and concern about what they're doing. And, and obviously without having that experience, they're fearful to take any kind of risk or, or step with just a pre-approval. I think that's the hardest bit really. And we're finding that some lenders have assessment cues that are blowing out past one month. Mm. So what it really means is that if they're getting out there and having a look at property, loving what they're seeing, they're probably not in a position to get serious about signing a contract yet. And that can be really frustrating as well.
0: Kate, if you look at those first home buyers who want to get into the market in the next 6 to 12 months and really do have a real desire to buy quickly, what is your advice to them at the moment?
2: Planning. Unfortunately, it's not something that that a lot of buyers get right. And I see people plan holidays or plan shopping trips with more precision than planning a home (laughs) purchase. That's so true, isn't it? And it starts It starts with a wish list and it starts with budgeting. You've got to work out what your borrowing capacity is and how much you're happy to borrow because borrowing capacity and willingness to spend are sometimes two different things. And then they've got to think about where they want to be and where they should be. And nobody can guarantee that they can buy a house that would give them, you know, 20 years of, of bliss, but we don't want to buy something that we're likely going to want to sell in a couple of years either. You know, a stepping stone shouldn't be something that you, you hold on to for less than five years because you've got stamp duty and selling fees and all of those nightmarish things. You really should be buying a property that you are very, very confident will last you at least five years as far as you can project and then start your shopping. So I, I do say to everyone, once you've worked out your wish list, the best way to make sure it's feasible is to jump onto a search engine and have a look at the sold properties. Don't look at what's for sale or what they're being quoted. Have a look at the ones that have been selling or download the auction clearance rates every Saturday and have a look at the ones that you were were keeping an eye on and what they actually sold for. And that is your best insight into understanding whether what you like is within budget or not and then if it's not there's things that you can do.
0: When you get into that way of thinking and analysing what the results are it becomes sort of second nature like I actually look forward to auction results being delivered to my inbox every Saturday night. I get a domain oh. email sent to me. <laughs> you and, me and, both. And, and, and I really like it though. But it's a, it's a real sort of ritual on my weekend. I can, all that, that house that I've walked past for four or five weeks um, that I may have walked through as an open for inspection just to have a sticky beak. I look at what it goes for or it got passed in and I think, gosh, that's interesting and it, it's a very easy way of staying abreast of the market and it's so light touch. It, it doesn't require much effort. Um, just a cursory glance at, at the areas that you're looking in it, be, it becomes such sort of powerful information, I think. That's so
2: true, Alice. I say to some first home buyers, don't be intimidated by, you know, where you think your knowledge sits. A first home buyer who's across everything. They've walked through, let's say it's a two-bedroom apartment, they've been through every two bedroom apartment for sale in these two suburbs over the last six weeks and then they're looking at the sales results they'll have assessed and checked off the prices of more two-bedroom apartments than most agents will in that time
0: frame in that area. So true. Kate, from what you've seen, I'm interested to talk a little bit more now about the first home loan deposit scheme. Yes. Has it been a success from your perspective? I won't say
2: no, because obviously for those that have been able to utilise it, it's been great. But we have to keep the numbers um, in mind and and put some context around that. It only really represents 10% of first home buyers. It's mm. a capped level, so there's 10,000 people who are eligible for it. Last year we had around 100,000 first home buyers out there. So we're, we're not looking at something that represents a large percentage of the first home buyer market. It's for a select few, it's for those that can get in quickly enough. Mm. However, for those that are um, actively using it, the differential is that obviously they're not having to capitalise lenders' mortgage insurance. Now, the way that mortgage insurance works for most borrowers, if they're borrowing over 80%, they have to take out this policy and it's quite hefty. It can be you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Mm. So this is where... Um, the initiative steps in. Um, our federal government is bridging that gap and allowing someone with as little as 5% to take out this game and have a, a non-LMI loan, so have an 80%
0: loan. So Kate, from your perspective, obviously there, there is an issue there that people may end up spending more than perhaps what they can afford to comfortably repay. Is that kind of the red flag that, that can exist in this situation? Yeah, that is a red flag. I think any first home buyer
2: who takes on all of the debt that they're essentially allowed to take on without really having a look at it and and asking themselves whether they want to take it on, Mm. that's that's where it can really bite. And if you've got insufficient savings and you're leaning on this scheme because your ability to save is problematic, I think that's a red flag as well. And one of the other risks is if someone has managed to save more than 5%, but then they take out this scheme, they put the, the funds that they've already saved towards borrowing more, it mm. um, that, that means that they're taking on more debt than they ordinarily would if the scheme didn't exist. I think that buyers need to be very honest with themselves and ask the honest question um, before they just jump in and borrow every single dollar that they possibly can.
0: I think you're spot on there, Kate, and I think we're a country, you know, traditionally we've always loved borrowing large amounts of money in Australia. It's sort of part of our DNA in many in many respects. And I think that's mm. sort of being turbocharged at the moment with such record low interest rates that borrowing is so cheap. Yes. There is such temptation out there and I think buyers, particularly 1st home buyers, really need to exercise discipline and think they're in this for the long haul. It's not just a a 12-month loan or something. They're they're going to live with this for a long time. Um, They really have to be very honest with themselves about that. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, Kate, are there any other things that 1st home buyers need to be aware of when applying for the scheme, do you think? I know we've just obviously touched on that major issue. Is there anything else to be aware of? Yeah, there's a few things they should be aware of. The first one is the
2: need to move quickly. If they're really determined to have the assistance of this scheme, they've got to get their skates on. There's 27 lenders on the panel that are facilitating this scheme. So there's certainly a lot of lenders that aren't. There will be some first-time buyers out there that will be eligible for only certain loans with certain lenders and getting Mm. the right advice around that's really critical. And if their only eligibility is for a loan with a lender that's not on this panel, well then they've got to make that decision, am I happy to proceed without the scheme and obviously face lender's mortgage insurance because getting the right loan given their, their circumstances is really critical. So it's not for everyone. There will be some borrowers that are filtered out because of policy. And I, I do say to everyone, LMI isn't great. No one likes paying um, mm. or having a, an extra portion of lending on, on their baseline. But if it helps you get where you want to get to, and you can
0: afford it. It's not a bad thing. It's actually an enabler. And I think you've touched on that hot spot for first-time buyers, which is FOMO. And I think, you know, if they keep waiting and waiting we don't know what's going to happen. We're seeing the market hasn't dipped substantially yet. We're obviously going to have to wait for the next couple of quarters to really see the effect that COVID has on the market. Yeah, But I think for a lot of people, they just can't bear not being in it and fearful of prices continuing to rise. And some of the biggest mistakes I see all buyers make
2: is sitting back trying to time the market when they've got an opportunity to get in now. Mm. The upside is that the market comes off 5% and they get a bit of a discount, but the risk is that they miss the opportunity to buy in an area that they can afford now Mm. if the market does bounce back. It's a really difficult thing to predict.
0: Mm. No, I think you're spot on, Kate, and you've given first-time buyers, and even myself, you know, I've, I've already bought, but it's a lot to think about and constantly keep weighing up and assessing our sort of property health, I suppose. Kate Vakos, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. Now, we're going to hear the story of a buyer who didn't waste any time taking advantage of the first Homeland Deposit Scheme. They got their application lodged as soon as the program opened.
1: So I'm Tim. I'm a lawyer and I work in the Federal Public Service. I'm from Sydney. I took this job in Canberra about 18 months ago. My partner and I got married in December last year and found ourselves very quickly looking at property early in 2020, partially propelled by this first home loan deposit scheme. Yeah, our experience was pretty seamless actually. The scheme opened on the 1st of January, 2020. So already within those first few days, we were speaking to a broker who had some knowledge of the program. could get more for our money in the act and then what we could get in sydney and that was noting also the caps on the property prices in the act it was 500 grand and yeah what you can get for 500 grand in the act is a bit of an upgrade from what you might get for 500 grand in sydney i think based on our incomes we could have got a loan for significantly higher than 500 grand but we probably would have had to get lenders mortgage insurance and obviously we would be in far more debt so our repayment burdens would have been significantly higher and so actually for us to go in on this scheme where we didn't take on a loan that was as high as it possibly could have been we actually feel Like, we are quite comfortably meeting the mortgage repayments and, you know, are still able to save and, you know, have other financial goals as well as just putting every single cent that we own into a mortgage. So, it kind of kept things in check. It also had the effect of removing some of the pressure that people feel when they go to auctions. The first place that we actually went for, we tried to purchase at auction. Through doing our research, we felt that putting in 500k was quite fair as a bid, and we, in fact, were the only bidders in that auction. The vendors wanted more, and we could actually sit there quite confidently and not feel pressured to commit any more money because we, you know, were limited by this hard cap. Take it all, (laughs) Ethan.
0: changing gears somewhat now from the entry-level market to the ultra-prestige. We're now going to chat to Domain's Prestige property editor, Lucy Mackin, about what's been happening at the top end of that market. Lucy, thank you for joining me. It's lovely to be able to chat with you today. Yeah, my pleasure, Alice. It's great. Now, Lucy, can you give us a bit of a um, 101 in terms of what constitutes a prestige price market in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane? They're very different markets, you know, particularly at the moment.
3: You know, we used to say about 3 million in Sydney, and about two or three years ago, we realised actually we're talking 5 million plus in Sydney, and that escalates up, obviously. Uh, In Melbourne, that's 3.5 million plus. And more than two million in Brizzy,
0: really. If you're not trading above that, you're really in the broader market. Whatever way you look at it, it's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but it's a very fascinating category for a lot of people. Lucy, if we look at how that market has fared since COVID hit, can you give us a snapshot as as to what's happened and if it's been impacted profoundly by COVID? I, along with everyone else, sort of braced for you know Armageddon, so to speak, economically. Mm. And
3: that is just not translating at the moment in prestige. But there is an undercurrent to that activity, you know, given these, you know, really warring headwinds that are buffeting most of the other industry sectors. I was chatting with someone earlier today and we were discussing, you know, the sort of frantic activity, but not necessarily... A number of huge sales at the moment, although we have enough of them. It's a bit like everyone's playing musical chairs, you know, when you, you know, your seventh Mm. birthday and everyone's dancing around the circle for a while and singing and, you know, the music's going, but you just know there's this sense that any minute now, mum is about to stop the music and everyone (laughs) is going to have to scramble for a metaphorical chair or a house. And that... The result is that good property is selling well at the moment and often for a premium, but there is an undercurrent to this.
0: We know how important confidence is when it comes to transacting property, but is there a certain robustness to this end of the market that people aren't feeling so fragile? Look, I'm not actually sensing that per se, actually. Uh,
3: You know, these headwinds, you know, this market of buyers, they read the business pages, let me tell you. They are very Mm. aware of the headwinds coming. I think what's underpinning it more is that there's a very little stock available and you know, maybe they're not as spooked because they've lived through things like the GFC and such, um, and they've learnt a lot of lessons in recent years. You know, on on the, you know the fallout from the banking royal commission and such. So they're very, there's not a lot of exposure in terms of their debt levels as historically that market has <laughs> has been slugged with. Um, but it comes down more to the fact that stock levels. You know, they were picking up late last year and early this year and there was a raft of top sales at the beginning of this year, you know, enough to lure some of the more hardened empty nesters to think about selling the family home. Mm. But then, of course, you know, someone ordered the bat and overnight everything sort of has closed down and now you've got thousands of Australians who have been caught in that in-between stage. So they're yet to buy or they're needing to buy, given they've already sold, and they've been caught sort of mid... uh, mid-move, if you will, or mid-life, you know, life change. Mm. So you've got this sort of thing where people who were thinking of selling or about to list in the prestige market have stopped and they've shut the door on it. So you've got listings
0: that have fallen off a cliff and you've got this sort of bank of buyers who are still there. And I saw also that there's a bit, some stock that's been on the market is now shifting. I noticed that we saw Jennifer Hawkins' house yeah. has now sold. How long was that on the market Look, for? that wasn't on the market that
3: long, actually, so six months. Look, that was a surprising one for me, I'll be honest, because there was a $20 million bottom line under it
0: when it was listed. It was... November last year. And then the bushfires also impacted that region. And I remember sort of being curious as to what would happen with that property. I wondered if people were a bit deterred from purchasing there. And then so we didn't see much happen to it. And now it has just transacted, though. Do you think that's sort of to do with COVID, that there isn't enough stock on the market so people are looking twice at different properties?
3: No, absolutely. That is a, a case of lack of stock. The listings data, you know, echoes what the agents have been saying and what we're seeing ourselves on, you know the real estate portals. So overall, Australia-wide, new listings fell from 404 in the first quarter of this year to 298. That's, you know, 26%. But the thing is, like I said, if you've got good property, it's still selling well and it's very price sensitive, which is, again, why I thought Jen Hawkins, that was a surprise that sold. I thought $20 was bullish at the time.
0: Um, Lucy, I'm interested if international borders are having an impact on the prestige market. We know that a lot of overseas buyers have long adored buying in Australia. Now that people can't fly in and look around, is that is that having an impact on the prestige market? Yes.
3: When I talk about international buyers to the agents at the moment, they immediately start talking about expats because – You know, Mm. the foreign buyer can't get here. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a case earlier this year of a a buyer from China buying in Roseville, sight unseen. That is the exception. You know, in this end of the market, or any end of the market, really, you don't buy property without having a look at it first. Uh, So while you do get that exceptional sort of, you know, that makes headlines when people do it. Um, so we're really talking about the expats and, you know, there are a few factors there. The expats at the moment are returning home in droves. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of them around and it's really not as fun to be an expat at the moment in parts of the world as it was 20 years ago. You know, Hong Kong, we have seen a lot of expats returning home and anecdotally I'm seeing it. Mm. And from New York, one of the buyer's agents who does a lot of expat deals, mainly Mossman, but a lot in the Eastern suburbs as well. He just said, You know, they're coming home and they're thinking, I'm just going to stop here for a while. We don't know Mm. when we'll go back. And bear in mind the Aussie dollar is 69 US cents and the 70 cent threshold seems to be a tipping point historically in the thinking of expats so that, you know, once we fall below that, they start to look at real estate back home because they're getting it a lot cheaper.
0: Mm. And I think you're right. I think we're definitely seeing it from Hong Kong, New York and also London, I think too. And I suppose the challenge is, as you touched on earlier, there's just no stock for them to purchase. So. That's right. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Mm. I know that um, a lot of agents, in Victoria or m- Melbourne and around South Yarra and Turk are frustrated by not having anything to offer. These people who are primed, ready to strike, wanting to do a deal, That's right. and they just they, they can't do anything.
3: You've also got a few vendors who are hitting the market. Because the market is so price sensitive, if you overprice mm. stuff at the moment, you know, that may have worked last year, um, yep. <laughs> it doesn't work this year. You will not yep. transact. You know, the wishful thinkers are
0: not going to happen. I completely agree and I think that's why I'm enjoying watching a lot of agents having those sort of, you know, really straight-talking um, conversations with people because I think the good thing about this market is that all those ideas about kicking tyres, waffling on, talking things up, it, it's, it's kind of, there is actually no place for it in this current market, which I actually quite like. Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> Lucy, are we in a similar situation to what happened after the GFC last time in Australia, if we were trying to find a comparable?
3: Superficially, I sort of, you, you can't help but go there, but it is actually a very different market. And I have had a chat to a few people about this in the last few days, because I really wanted to be able to draw the parallels, but they say it's very different. You know, in the lead up to the GFC, interest rates, if you remember it, I do, um, were seven to eight percent. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that hammered the mums and dads homeowners. But the base, Bankers and their ilk, with their sort of $1 million bonuses and big deposits on the home, were paying huge money at that time for their real estate. Now, once the GFC hit, it's as if things flipped. Rates were slashed, so the mums and dads were okay, but the bankers were being laid off in droves and they were being forced to sell at a loss because they were so highly leveraged. And so the mums and dads actually kicked off after that. That market kicked off, whereas the prestige market was hit hardest to the point that, you know, that market didn't really recover from the GFC until late 2012 or even 2013. Now, you know, the high-end homeowners today overall haven't forgotten the pitfalls have been overly extended, you know, on the home Mm. loan. Um, And the Banking Royal Commission, you know, the uptick of that is that lenders are far stricter about who they will lend to and how much. And interest rates, obviously, are at historic lows. So, mm. you know, it is those mums and dads, investors and first home buyers who are looking the most precarious at this point because it will come down to employment levels.
0: On that note, Lucy, when we talk about the headwinds, how much of an impact is that having on people at the moment?
3: Yeah, look, while I've said it's not showing particularly in the prestige market, they are there and and we can all read the paper and see, you know. Um, you know, there's the cost savings, of course, you know, no trips to Europe and, you know, skiing in Aspen is on hold for now, obviously. Um, but those in the hospitality, pub game, tourism, you know, they may well be considering trading down at the moment. And there are buys mm-hmm. if they do so. And as long as they don't go for you know, too much money or overpriced things, they will sell and transact down. And that wouldn't necessarily show as a big dent in the market. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily pass the hat around for them yet. But they won't be sleeping as well as they were last year. And when the mortgage holiday and JobKeeper ends in September, that will inevitably hurt. Everyone will know about that. But I'm not sure the ripple effect of that will be so bad up the price chain. You know, sure, all mm-hmm. those on JobKeeper will be stuck with a mortgage they can't pay, but will there? employer as well. And, you know, this flight to quality is really propping up the market at the moment in terms of buyer demand. But that will start to change next year, I think. I wouldn't be putting money on it going forward, which is why I come back to this analogy of the musical chairs. You know, everyone's running around now getting their ducks (laughs) in a row um, because I don't think anyone knows for certain what's going to happen, you know, beyond, you know, we'll have JobKeeper come off in September, October, November. As we know, property data takes a few weeks to start to show movements up or down given six-week settlements. And then we've got a break for Christmas. God, bring it on. Yeah. And then... (laughs) Let's see what let's see
0: what next year brings. I mean, on a, honestly, how do you predict anything at the moment? I think we just have to keep analysing what we've got in front of us and just stay focused, I suppose, without getting too sort of carried away with speculation. And that's why I think property is a great tester of that because we are seeing hard facts and hard numbers piled up against things. So I think we just need to watch closely and talk to people like you, Lucy. I'm so grateful for you. You're really at the coalface of this. So thank you for your time today. Isn't it a
3: terrific time to be in property? It's great. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Lucy. I'll speak to you soon. See you. Bye. Before I sign off, I wanted to let you know about why we've decided to create this podcast. We know that property can be complex, baffling, and incredibly confusing. And that's why we want to unpack with you issues that matter without all the jargon, so you can really understand how they're going to affect you. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you want answered, please email us at propertyunpacked at domain.com.au. Thanks and talk to you next week. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. Property Unpacked is hosted by me, Alice Stoltz. This episode was produced by Alexandra Spangaro, Stephen Cluxton, with production support from Hayley Cools. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au.